0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Not only the name of the house that I grew up in, the Bramble is one of the most famous modern classic cocktails to come out of the UK. It was created by Dick Bradsell, a pioneer within Britain's cocktail movement and the inventor of the espresso martini who sadly passed away in 2016. Carrying the torch for Dick today is Jared Brown, a friend and contemporary of Brad Sells, who also just happens to be the founder of the wonderful gym brand Sipsmith. Jared is also a wealth of knowledge on pretty much everything relating to drinks history And along with his wife, Anastasia Miller, he owns a publishing company that just released Brad Sells' cocktail book, Dick Tales. Just going to leave that one hanging there. Our conversation today is going to lead us into such wide-ranging topics as... ...iceless Bloody Marys. Entering one of London's most vaunted celebrity hangouts via the men's bathroom window... And a bizarre cocktail that resembles a lava lamp. Oh, and we're also going to go well beyond the recipe on the bramble, the topic of today's show, because that's what we do here on the Cocktail College podcast. I'll try and keep us on track, but often I'm the one. Okay, diverting us. <laughs> um, we're in the Vine Pair Studio. It's a wonderful, wonderful day here today, and I am so happy to be joined by Jared Brown, Sip Smith. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. We're here to chat about the Bramble today, one of, I would argue, a handful of "quote unquote" modern classics that's deserving of the title that really is has broken through as being one of these icons of the of the of the past couple of decades. These new drinks. Before we dive into our exploration there, can you just briefly highlight the components of this cocktail for anyone who might know its name but is not particularly familiar with the drink itself?
1: Certainly, like most drinks that Dick Bradsell created, this drink has a very simple structure, not a lot of ingredients. It's gin, lemon, simple syrup, creme de mûre, blackberry liqueur, and garnished with a couple of fresh blackberries, and a little bit of a dusting of icing sugar.
0: Very nice. And yeah, like you said, very, very simple cocktail there. I think three of the ingredients most folks would have at home, maybe the one that they're going out and and, and having to look for there is the creme de mure, the blackberry liqueur. But um, I'm hoping that over the course of today's show, we're gonna convince them that that's something they should be doing if they don't have one already. Um, We like to begin by diving into the history of drinks it is, of course, easier when these are modern classics because a lot of the folks are, are you know, either still around or it's in recent memory. You mentioned right there that's Dick Bradsell, huge figure in the UK and and particularly like London cocktail scene. Can you share with us today the the, the backstory of this drink and, and and any kind of interactions that you've had or relationships working with with Dick there?
1: Actually, it's funny that you should ask that this, and perfect timing, because my wife and I also have a publishing company, any Books, and we have just released Dick Bradsell's autobiography. Wow. Dick, Dick Tales is now up on Amazon, available, and what we did was we took all of the notes that he had written on drinks. He'd illustrated them all, so rather than typing them in, we just photographed them all so you can read it all in his handwriting. And I think he's got three or four pages on the bramble. Wow. And so really deep dives, and there's no question but what he wrote it, because it's there in his handwriting, and you can really explore the drink exactly as he specified. He illustrates it in a number of illustrations. Um, He refers to coming up with the Bramble as his Madeleine moment, referring to Proust's um, involuntary memory of eating Madeleines as a child. Mm. And it was that moment, tasting the Bramble liqueur on this drink and being taken straight back to his childhood of picking Bramble's blackberries.
0: Mm -hmm. So incredible there. And and is that also something that's, a theme for, for different drinks there in this book for, for Dick or you know is the, the kind of three pages is, is he going deeper on this one than others I mean I, I might argue that perhaps wrongfully the drink of Dick's that's, that's better known of course is the Espresso Martini or the, the Vodka Espresso as, as he primarily named it but this is the one that I think the enthusiasts really love
1: uh, The Espresso Martini actually had a third name as well the pharmaceutical stimulant, because <laughs> Dick Dick was head bartender for Damien Hurst when Damien Hurst had a pharmacy in Notting Hill, mm-hmm. and so there it was named the pharmaceutical stimulant.
0: Wow, and and, and Dick it was someone. Can, can you explain kind of your background as well, getting into this industry and also. Yeah, how how you and Dick, maybe, your paths first crossed and, and then continued to work together after that.
1: Oh, Dick Bratzel, father of modern British bartending. Um, if you meet a great bartender with a background in London, he was either trained by Dick or she worked for someone who was trained by Dick. But his influence uh, is astonishingly broad and deep. And he was extremely passionate about drink from an early age you know, from when he got started somebody recommended uh, david Embry's fine art of mixing drinks to him and he just took that on as a bible for making drink and it is a great one for that and uh, found himself to be a phenomenal bartender a great palate a great business sense a um, wonderful host uh, ability to keep people awake, keep them shocked mm-hmm. surprised and enjoying themselves. Uh, he would frequently show up in a dress behind the bar <laughs> with his and a, maybe a blonde wig and a beret and a mm-hmm. look on his face like, yeah, go ahead say something <laughs> he he was also had been a hardcore punk back in the day so. Quite a character. Some other surprises with Dick. Um, if you're familiar with ska music, the English beat, mm-hmm. he co-wrote the song "Twist and Crawl."
0: Wow, we're searching that one. Yeah, is that we'll find that one on what YouTube, all, all all major music providers there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and conclusive proof that he did it in Dick Tales. In Dick Tales. Yep. Wonderful Which name he, for a book, by the oh, way. He he chose the name himself. And I have no doubt that he's somewhere having a great laugh because when you look it up on Amazon, there it is, and the only other books that show up under that same name is a gay porn series.
0: Yep, you would imagine <laughs> you would imagine he's up there somewhere having a laugh right now, and and um, you know leaving that legacy just with a little you know an extra little chuckle for himself, and probably I'm sure everyone who knew him. Um, so when, where, where's Dick working when he comes up with this drink? Um, how does it also relate to other drinks out there, right? Like many of these modern classics are inspired by known drinks or formulas that are already out there. So where does he get his inspiration for, for, for this and, and where does he debut it?
1: In the early 80s, Dick was working in a member's club called Zanzibar in, uh, in London. He um, was working with another bartender named Fred Taylor. And Fred and Dick decided they would open a bar. It became known as Fred's because Fred had the investment money for it. And uh, at, it was at Zanzibar that Dick was making a lot of Singapore slings. So gin, cherry, hearing, benedictine, uh, lemon juice, soda water, et
0: mm-hmm.
1: In tall thin glass pilsner glass filled with crushed ice then somebody brought him a bottle of creme de mour, and he gave that a try replaced the cherry hearing with creme de moore in the zanzibar singapore sling and uh dearly loved the drink but when they opened fred's he dropped the benedictine dropped the soda water and that's how it became the bramble was that structure? But um, it had taken him straight back to his childhood on the Isle of Wight, memories of cuts all over his arms and Mm -hmm. face all colored purple by the brambles, the blackberries they were eating. And he had wanted to make a a drink that was all English as well, a very nationalist structure to it uh, of ingredients and flavor. And uh, though strictly speaking, I think he was using a French uh, crème de menthe, but <laughs> the rest of it certainly mm-hmm. was. Well, there was also Spanish lemons in there.
0: But, but <laughs> that that idea, that I mean, that those bramble fruits, it is a very kind of evocative of the British countryside. And actually, fun little fact here: the 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 house that I grew up in, or spent the majority of my childhood and young adulthood in. Uh, was called The Brambles. That was the name of the... It was at number seven on the street, but it had the name The Brambles, and there were bramble bushes there. So oh. certainly for me, it does seem to be a very very English and kind of British idea. Oh, yeah, truly.
1: And um, let's see. Reading from the book, from Dick Tales. Uh, at Fred's Club, invented the bramble. A liquor reminded me of my childhood. Blackberries in autumn or summer. Color covered in purple. A British drink, <laughs> and uh, you know, the bramble. I wanted to invent an English drink, a British cocktail. So I used the spirit, soured, sweetened, and flavored template. So he, there, he's already talking about the balance, the structure, ratio being 50 mil spirit, 25 sour element, 12 and a half mil sweetener, lessened to balance sweetness of the flavoring, the liqueur bit, and. Gin, lemon juice, sugar, blackberry liqueur as a straight-up cocktail doesn't quite work, so I used the Zanzibar Singapore Sling Recipe. 15 mils gin, 25 lemon, 10 mils sugar syrup, over crushed ice in a tall pilsner glass top with soda. Uh, lace with 15 mils cherry hearing, a benedictine, orange lemon cherry, butterfly. Uh, then some chap from a company brought me uh, boutineau creme de mure from France. First sip and I had a Madeleine moment. Mm. It reminded me of childhood foraging for blackberries in East Cow's Isle of Wight. In season, we would be purple with scratches from trying to grasp wild blackberries from above the parens,
0: from above the dogs and foxes' piss line. (laughs) I mean, that's one thing you will learn, sorry to interject here, but that's one thing (laughs) you will learn if you are foraging for berries or you're on a walk in the English countryside, Make sure it's kind of shoulder level when you're picking those fruits, because those berries, because uh, otherwise, yeah, you might want to wash them first, at least, at the very least. <laughs> exactly.
1: And Dick says, So I made this with Spanish lemons, French more and dry gin. And in a shaker glass, 50 mils of good gin, 25 mils fresh lemon, 10 mils uh, sugar syrup, even. In his own writing, he's just changed by two and a half mils, Mm -hmm. uh, something that I find frequently happened with Dick. He would do micro-adjustments of recipes, even within recipes, Um, shake with ice, strain into a double old-fashioned or regular old-fashioned, full of crushed ice. Now, to put it into context, in the early mid-80s, it seemed like crushed ice was fad and fashion, and it endured up into the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly one of the funniest moments for me was um, in Cuba, and this somebody ordered gin tonic in a bar in Cuba, and the bartender said, oh, I've actually been to London. I know exactly how you like to make these. And he took a tall, thin Pilsner glass, and he rammed it full of crushed ice, and he poured gin and tonic <laughs> in it. And he said, I noticed you Brits drink every drink this way.
0: <laughs> wow. What a, what, a, what a different time right there. Truly.
1: But then he would top up more crushed ice on top of the crushed ice to give it a nice, round, fresh head of it, a couple of shortened straws because he wanted your nose right down at the drink and um, a couple of uh, blackberries on top, and then lace the top with 12 and a half mils of creme de mour. And this is real key, because then you'd see the creme de moure running down in the drink through the nice. crushed ice. And beautiful visual, not just great color, but motion to it. Mm-hmm. And a gorgeous serve. And so yeah, that was the structure of it. He even drew this little picture and parenthetical under it, a lovely trickle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that last detail there addresses the question that I was going to ans- ask you immediately after that. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And it's it's all really kind of hypothetical or subjective here, but I'm wondering... How is this one of the cocktails that, that becomes involved in that conversation of modern classics? Because creme de mur, okay, if you're getting one from a great producer, wonderful ingredient, but maybe not cool, for want of a better word, right? But then is it that final detail, that trickle there where it's like, okay, you said the straw is in deep, so it brings your nose to the drink. You have this visual. So we're thinking about this drink on a different level and that maybe inspires bartenders to say, this is more than, than an adapted right Singapore sling. Do you, do you think that's how that helps the fortunes of this drink? Or do you think, how, how does it become, how does it get its status?
1: I would say that it, it wins its stas- status in the most fundamental way possible. It is simply extremely good. Yes. And, and that's what it comes down to. It's just a delicious drink. It's beautifully fresh and balanced. It's not cloying, it's not too bitter, it's not too strong, not too weak, it just hits that sweet spot. And um, let's see, I think I can count the number of great drinks uh, made with creme de More on one finger. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. So is it's it. also
0: unique. Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting co- conversation for categories of spirits as well, right, like how does a spirit take off a new spirit, not new, but maybe new to to certain palates or certain generations? What does it need? Like it needs status, but having one iconic cocktail that it's associated with strongly, I'm sure really helps. Like I'm not saying the creme de mure market is booming right now, but if you have a bottle, you know what you're doing with it.
1: Absolutely. And, Interestingly, I've I've gone and reversed this. I've tried it with cherry hearing, and that's also not a bad drink.
0: I I bet. I mean, that's a wonderful ingredient that a, a little goes a long way. Yep, really wonderful, and and that you can uh, you can stock up there for what your view view You would have <laughs> your cherry hearing on hand for for that
1: and your straight sling, your Singapore sling.
0: Actually, no, it's not cherry hearing in the in the view caray, is it? It's the. Um, remember the main is the one I think that I'm thinking oh, of here. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a, a decent That's one. It. I'm thinking of Benedictine there, but yeah, no wonderful, wonderful ingredients there. And like, okay, depends how big of a space you have to, to make your alcohol collection bigger. But if you do have a space for some of these, these modifiers, these, these more kind of out there ingredients, great to add them. Great to have them in your portfolio. Um, So in terms of that time, and again, if I can just ask you like how yours and Dick's paths cross and also like when when Dick comes up with this drink, how much is there of an interaction between New York bartenders and London bartenders to I'm not saying that New York's the center of the universe. We, we do have a slight focus on New York here being based here, but also just I think that's one of the great stories of the last 20 years, the interactions of those two cities and the bartenders within them and the, the sharing of knowledge and drinks.
1: And actually for this, among many other drinks that Dick invented, he, will, he repeatedly cites a trip to New York. Oh, wow. And coming to the, I think it was the Four Seasons Hotel had just opened and beautiful bar and they were making a lot of martinis at that time. It was the 80s mm-hmm. and a lot of martinis with liqueurs and uh, it was a huge inspiration moment for him. Mm-hmm. And I believe this is one of the drinks that also benefited from that.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense,
1: but we, uh, my wife and I, first met Dick when a friend had brought us to the Colony Rooms, which was a private club on, I think it was on Dean Street, next to the Groucho, which is the major mm-hmm. wild celebrity. The club to club. be a
0: yeah to be a is it is yeah. it does it remain that way to this day? Or? Um,
1: I haven't been in in a while, mm-hmm. but. Um, Colony Room was just next to it and was owned by, I think, uh, Damien Hurst and Francis Bacon. Mm -hmm. So very much an artist's uh, hangout, hidden upstairs, all painted green inside. And uh, we came in. It was a Friday night. The bar was three deep. And he shook our hands and uh, said, what can I bring you? And I said, well, whatever you feel like making. Great. Have a seat. Sent us off to a table and a few minutes later arrived with a round of gin and tonics. Honestly, looking back on that, I'm surprised he didn't just bring us a round of beers because he was that busy. (laughs) (laughs) But it certainly wasn't a moment to expect an espresso martini or a bramble or any of the many, many... He invented hundreds of drinks. Uh, But it wasn't a moment for that. But... After he put on the Fuck Off song, which he used to close the bar every night. Uh, <laughs> and was lyrics like, you can keep on drinking, but you can't do it here. Fuck off. <laughs> Perfect song for closing the bar. Um, and then he, he motioned for us to stay. And as soon as everybody was out, he led us into the men's toilet. And he opened the window. And he climbed out, and he reached back and helped us climb out the men's toilet window. Now we're standing on a rooftop in Soho. <laughs> and we walked across the rooftop, and he opened another window, and we climbed into another men's toilet. And this one was the men's toilet at the Groucho. And we walked out of the toilet... And a waitress on seeing us come out said, oh, Mr. Bradsell, good to see you. Your table's ready. <laughs> Apparently, he'd been doing this for so long, they'd given him a membership, but he still refused to use the front door. <laughs> and we, we sat, and we ordered drinks, and he rather solicitously said to me, um, well, first, what's your name again? Yeah, Jerry Brown. Well, Mr. Brown, what would you like to be remembered for? And I rather facetiously replied, well, certainly not the Lava Lamp cocktail. (laughs) And he said, oh, God, page 79 of your book. It was horrible. (laughs) Hang on. You can't remember my name, but you can remember the page number of the worst drink I ever put into print. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) And it it did perfectly recreate a Lava Lamp visually, uh, one that had been turned off for about six months. It just had a pile of goo sitting in the bottom of it, and it went nowhere. Tell I, us
0: about this drink. This is not a drink that I am familiar with. Oh, this,
1: this was a vodka that was essentially sitting on a pile of honey mixed with a liqueur that gave it color. And you shouldn't be familiar with this drink. As <laughs> thankfully, miraculously, it doesn't even seem to have made it onto the Internet. Oh, Wow. And uh, it certainly didn't make it into the revised and expanded edition of Shake and Not Stirred, A Celebration of the Martini, um, which was actually the book that launched my wife and I into all of this to begin with. So we we hit it off from there. Mm-hmm. got talking. He actually contributed to our revised expanded edition with the proviso that that drink had to be deleted. <laughs> uh, Oddly, Angus Winchester, then global brand ambassador for Tanqueray Gin, um, did exactly the same. Agreed to contribute to the the new book as long as that drink was deleted. Wow! So apparently, a few people gave it a try. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, this, it's it's a drink that I immediately want to go out there now and uh, and explore. Just
1: oh, don't don't please! I'll give you a worse one than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was actually the first drink I ever served to Dale DeGroff. Um, I was tending bar here in New York at a St. Patrick's Day party um, somewhere in Chelsea. Everybody was being drunken and obnoxious and annoying, and it was the era of the Cosmo. So I'd been chucking out Cosmos for everybody and ran out of triple sec. So everybody had brought green creme de month. I grabbed a bottle. I substituted it. It was horrific. (laughs) At that moment, I didn't like these people, so I put the drinks up, serving it, showing them only the top of my head, not looking up. And just then I see the first drink, a hand, comes in. I recognize that big bartender pinky ring, and I hear the voice, and I hear him say, oh, Jared, thanks so much for inviting us. I've had to work all morning. I'm desperate for a drink. And I'm just about to dive over the bar. No! And he's gone off with the drink down to the other end of this loft. And I saw him take a sip and stop and look at it for a minute. And I saw him very casually lose that drink and got himself a beer. (laughs) (laughs) So, Dale, sorry about that one.
0: <laughs> were you keeping, did you, did you keep the cranberry in it as well? So you literally just oh. like for it, creme de menthe instead of the, the triple second. That was it. Yep. You were off. Yep. Wow.
1: Oh, it was so bad. <laughs> never, yeah. N- note, never put green creme de menthe in a Cosmo. In
0: a Cosmo. And uh, maybe if you want to clear the bar, just resort to dick's tactics and put the fuck off song on. That's it. That's an easier one. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I, I I love these tales. Um we could talk about those for hours, but you know what else we can talk about for hours? What's I that? can and yourself too is gin. Yourself more than oh. more than me, but we're going to we're going to now break each ingredient down bit by bit. I mean, I you know, we've covered crème de mer a little bit. The lemon juice and simple are are, are fairly simple themselves, but we have you in the house, you know, founder, co-founder of, of Sipsmith Gin, but you, your, your exploration with gin professionally has been many years longer than that. And also, I know you've been doing a lot of work now going hundreds of years back when it comes to tracing the history and stuff. A lot to cover. This is going to be difficult for us. One thing I will say, somewhere to start it here, because Sipsmith, in my mind, I recall, I was still based in the UK at the time, and I re- remember when Sip Smith launched, and it's been described on the internet as a renaissance, and we actually spoke recently with Dale de Groff about the relative merits, or, or the relative kind of work done by Bombay first, and then Hendrix, but I think notably in those tales, the whole idea is, getting a little steering a clear and in some senses of the london dry profile and so sip smith to my mind is this one that comes back and says no we're you know we're we're celebrating london dry we're celebrating gin and and it just explodes i remember sip smith just being everywhere in the uk so congratulations on that my one thing i guess the one place i'll start this is just by saying Every single interaction I have with Sip Smith, the one thing that I always appreciate is just how fresh the juniper comes through. And gin is juniper, right? So can you talk to us about that? Maybe remind us about the fact that gin is made with fresh ingredients. It's a distilled spirit, but these are fresh botanicals. Talk to us about that and that and that philosophy and maybe a little bit of the beginning of the brand.
1: I remember when we started out, um, it, was, it was so funny because... Um, we reached out to botanical suppliers for samples. Now, at that time, there were 12 distilleries making gin in Britain, and there were no small distilleries at all. I think it was the Excise Act of 1825, which said no person shall keep a still of under 400 gallons, which is about 1,800 litres, pretty much stopped that from ever happening. So the 12 distilleries making gin were all enormous. So we asked for botanical samples and everybody would send us a year's supply as a sample. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which would have been a sample for Beefeater or Plymouth or Hendrix or Tanqueray but no that that was enough to keep us running for a year. <laughs> that has changed, I've noticed uh, after we kicked the door open by overturning that 1825 act there's now 600 uh, distilleries making gin in Britain and if you reach out to a botanical supplier they send you a little Ziploc bag of <laughs> botanicals <laughs> and that's it. Times have changed but I, I remember the first way I would judge juniper that had arrived as I'd roll up my sleeve and I'd plunge my arm down into the juniper uh, light dry that was a bag that needed to be rejected i wanted to feel the weight and the humidity of the oils in the juniper immediately so just arm down in and it feels heavy and you can feel the the cold associated yep. with all the oil in it and that's a good bag of juniper to start working with but the the is communis uh, grows subarctic to subtropic all the way around the northern hemisphere and the reason for that is that uh, it came up with a way to get its seed spread very well uh, what we think of as juniper berries are actually little pine cones where the scales have become fleshy and formed together to give the appearance of a berry so that birds would eat it, fly off in their droppings, they'd drop the seed also surrounded by good fertilizer, as bird poo is (laughs) and um, it it went everywhere but the terroir to produce that flavor you're talking about that that fresh soft pine sweet citrus that we we taste when we taste great gin that only really happens in the north mediterranean it's hot enough it's dry enough the conditions are rough enough the soil is poor enough to produce the perfect juniper. Uh, not new news. The Genoese merchants discovered this circa 1250 AD that they had a lucrative export of coals to Newcastle, of uh, uh, bringing juniper up to Britain and Germany and Sweden, where juniper grew everywhere. But the flavor was just so much
0: better. Wow.
1: Um, and you can also thank the plagues for spreading juniper and also bringing juniper into European culture um, because there was a superstition that the plague was spread by um, bad aromas and that juniper would ward off those bad aromas and keep you healthy. Mm -hmm. So people began to put it in their food, eat it with lamb or duck or pheasant uh, Beautiful flavor when you're using juniper there. They bathe in it, girdle in their homes with it, plant it around their houses. And um, it did work. And they they didn't know why it worked. But it turns out juniper is also a fairly effective natural flea repellent. Oh, wow. And I don't know why no one ever discovered this. I sat up out of a sound sleep, middle of the night, one night, and 12 years ago grabbed my laptop and googled juniper flea repellent and there was the answer
0: that's wonderful that i mean it's so incredible that these things that, that they all intertwine there and, and and the history and you know we're talking about the foundations that come together to 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 really form this category that's beloved in the UK beloved around the world now and and, and just has such a storied history and, and and you know like the accidental things that happen there too you talk about aromas, I mean, my, my, my initial experience with juniper was working in the kitchen and there would be a time of year when game season started, we'd start buying juniper, you know, jars and jars of it just to, as soon as that game came in, we'd butcher it down and we'd marinate it, maybe a, just a little bit of olive oil, some rosemary and juniper just to help kind of temper some of the, I mean, some of those, some of those meats can be pretty strong mm-hmm. <laughs> and juniper does so well there.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, let me put something else to rest. Um, this year, my wife and I will be presenting uh, the history of gin at Tales of the Cocktail. And uh, we've pre-recorded this. It's going to go out global video, uh, 27th of July. And uh, in it, we completely rewrite the history of gin. Gin did not come over from Holland. It did not evolve from Geneva. None of that's true. It was all made up by a writer in 1804. Pure fiction. Gin was born much earlier, already with complex recipes. We've got a 1639 recipe that uses juniper, orange, and lemon peel spices. Practically a modern structure from before Geneva arrived. So watch this space.
0: (laughs) Reclaiming gin. That's it. That's what I like to hear. Always proud of that, you know, we need stuff to be proud of and, and and that's definitely one to celebrate when it came to sip smith i i guess it shouldn't really anyone listening shouldn't really surprise them now given given the your approach to to drinks and cocktails and spirits this historical approach i'm sure it's not surprising anyone that you went down the london dry classic route rather than what's become known as as new western or or you know new new age gin or whatever right but what, was, what were you looking to do there other than launch a, a gin, you know, brand, a gin to the market? Like what, what opportunity did you think existed at the time?
1: Even before we created Sipsmith, uh, my wife and I had a, had a goal. We wanted to revive the gin category and we had already begin, begun taking this on, I think it was 2006, We took over a cinema in London from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., and we had representatives of all the gin companies. There weren't that many, so it was easy to get them all. And also bartenders who loved gin, bartenders from the very few gin bars that were out there, Mm -hmm. and got about 100 people into this theater and started out by doing a bit of a Fidel Castro rant at... (laughs) everyone, of how they were all responsible for destroying the category by focusing on the low end of the market, where they were gently losing 1-2% a year, but it was still enormous volumes, and completely overlooking the high end,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: we predicted could grow as much as 100% a year, year on year, 10 years at least. Uh, just saying, watch this space, get in on it and build it. Let's bring this back. Let's get people interested. Currently, nobody under 60 is drinking gin. Yeah. Let's give them something better to drink. And then I met my partner, Sam in Fairfax, and we created Sipsmith together. And um, I feel like we've Demonstrated yes art.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that super premium segment there, as they like to describe it here in the US, uh, it, it really just is thrive. I mean, it's also the trend across all spirits. Like people are willing to spend more to drink better, and they have been for, for a couple of years now, and and they continue to be. So great foresight there.
1: Mm, I but speaking of which I will never forget having arguments with heads of marketing of a few global brands, who kept coming up with larger and larger cocktail glasses and kept saying, this is the future. This is how people, how we can get people to have more, how we can move more product. Yeah. (laughs) And um, then Sasha Petrosky opened Milk and Honey at 134 Eldridge Street in New York, year 2000, and he was suddenly charging a few bucks more for a smaller drink. And people were having to book a month in advance to get a seat in a bar to have a drink. And uh, it was such a wonderful moment to see the ripple effect through the industry Mm -hmm. as we moved to smaller serves once again.
0: Yeah, And, and, and that, you know, the people deeply embedded within drinks culture having a better understanding of what's good for drinks culture rather than maybe in, in, in a boardroom or a marketing meeting. I don't want to say that all folks who are involved in the business don't know their stuff, but, you know, this, these were not decisions that were based on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet.
1: And then Sasha came to London with as opened a Milk and Honey London, working with Jonathan Downey, who was also um, running a series of bars called The Match Bars, Yeah, where... Dick Bradsell worked, mm-hmm. so there was a single degree of separation between, between Sasha and Dick and, Bradsell at mm-hmm. that time.
0: And, and and to steer this gin conversation back to back to the bramble, in, you know, specifically, of course, this would have been the style. That, you know, London Dry would have been the style that was available to Dick at the time. I can't imagine there was any you know anything too experimental on the market there. But modern day. Folks do have the, these crazy botanicals and, and, you know, botanical focused gins, you know, like fruity, floral, very far away from juniper. They might expect that that gin works better in this cocktail because the other components are, are fruit and citrus. Would you, why would you argue just playing devil's advocate here? Can, can you explain why London Dry remains the best option when making this cocktail?
1: Um, I think you get much more depth and dimension of a classic London dry in the bramble than you would a very fruit-driven gin. It would also detract from the beautiful balance where it, he's, he's not adding loads of different fruit. He's adding just the creme de mour. Mm-hmm. And so he's isolating that creme de mur flavor. He, he's framing it. And highlighting it and letting it shine on stage, and I don't think the stage needs to be crowded. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to be a solo performance on the fruit. Yes, uh, with the creme de here,
0: and, and and then yeah, having that interesting and, and wonderful contrast as well between the kind of all the different characteristics that gin brings to the party. Um, this is a shaken cocktail, correct? It is. I have a question for you. I've come across before people saying you shouldn't drink gin because it bruises gin. Oh, I, you shouldn't shake gin
1: because it bruises it. I've, um, can you put that myth to bed or is, yep. or, or, or is oh, this true? No, absolutely untrue. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk about what bruising actually is. Bruising is a loss of viscosity, a move from solid thin liquid that's what bruising is somebody punches you in the arm, you get a bruise that's actually the cell structure of your flesh being broken down ruptured Uh, so with gin let's look at what happens when you shake it Um, it gets air bubbles in it, they dissipate it um, heightens the flavor a bit through that aeration, and uh, it gets cold, it gets diluted, but bruised? No. Um, But the one drink that does is a Bloody Mary, Mm -hmm. and that's because uh, tomato juice is a plastic colloid, it's a thixotropic um, liquid, and so when you leave tomato juice sitting, it becomes slowly more and more dense. And with agitation, it becomes thin. Take ketchup, for example. You pick a bottle of ketchup from the shelf, open it, turn it over, nothing comes Mm -hmm. out. You could put the neck in a C-clamp, leave it there, nothing's coming out. Mm -hmm. It's stuck. It's turned to solid. Now, agitate it, whack it a few times with the heel of your hand, and suddenly you've got ketchup on your plate, on your your trouser leg, on the floor, That's because you've just turned it to thin liquid. Mm -hmm. So people should not shake or even throw a Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary was always meant to be rolled gently between two tins. Um, I've gone one step further when I make them at home and uh, mixed all the other ingredients and then gently layer in the tomato juice. And uh, I've served this to... Oh, Peter Dorelli, former head bartender at the Savoy in London, to Ago Perone, currently uh, number one in the world with the Connaught bar. Um, Eric Lawrence, uh, a few others. Quant, I believe. Yes, that's it. And it's reopened, which is just wonderful mm-hmm. news. Um, and I've asked them to describe what they're tasting, and they've, they've described beautiful density to it. Gorgeous flavor balance, etc. Not one of them noticed I'd served it at room temperature. Hmm. So no ice involved, no dilution, and get a much better Bloody Mary that way.
0: Wow. Gin naturally? Or, or are you? Still- oh, I
1: prefer gin. Um, it goes far beyond just a flavor difference. Um, yeah. I find that mm-hmm. vodka in Bloody Mary gives you a very sharp, peppery um, heat, and the gin goes soft and herbaceous, mm-hmm. and it, it's far more gentle and subtle in the <laughs> drink. I really like it that way. Of course, the gin Bloody Mary, the Red Snapper. The Red Snapper taking its name from the brand of premix that uh, Ferdinand Pete Petio used, which was Red Snapper brand Premix, a spicy blend of tomato and clam.
0: Ah, which old. was
1: made all the way around uh, the United States uh, from the 1890s mm-hmm. up through the 1930s, and uh, I've got, as far as I know, I've got the only bottle still with a label. Oh wow! On it,
0: of course. These days, you'll much you'll much sooner encounter that concoction, that mixture known here as clamato. And I see what they did there: that the, the fine marketing folks they took half of one word <laughs> and half of another. And they put them together. Perhaps you're more likely to come across it in Canada. There, they do enjoy their Caesars
1: um, to the point where I believe they serve something like 350 million of them per year, accounting mm-hmm. for consumption of 10 million liters of vodka.
0: Phenomenal! I was actually just in in um, in Calgary recently, and there was a Caesar festival going on, which I was sadly not able to take part in. But maybe you know, maybe next year. I know it's an annual event they do. Um, Slight, slight little gin sidestep there, but that is incredible. And I I, I do want to just round off that section by saying, personally, I'm, la- I'm glad we landed on the Bloody Mary there because I believe the first time that we met a couple of years ago was a, a collaboration between a friend's a food truck of mine and Sipsmith Gin doing Bloody Marys at various festivals together on the London festival scene. That was fun. That was the first time we met. So, um, yeah, that was nice to come full circle there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, creme de Mer being the next ingredient I want to explore for this cocktail in just a little bit more detail. You mentioned at the time Dick would have had one brand available to him, or maybe it was a brand you know that came to him. That, has that market increased a lot, or does it remain relatively few? Are you able to yeah, kind of highlight what you're looking for from that ingredient, and yeah.
1: There are, there are a few more creme de murs on the market today, and certainly a few much better. Mm-hmm quality creme de on the market, which is wonderful. Uh, though, at home, we still also opt to make our own. Okay. And um, one of the recipes that my wife found a uh, century or two old, uh, you cook down the fruit on a Saint-Emilion wine. Ooh. And then, when you've cooked this down and sweetened it, you fix it with uh, brandy to stabilize it. And we've done a fair bit of Creme de mour and Creme de Cassis mm-hmm. this way.
0: And so we're talking, what, Right Bank, Bordeaux, Merlot dominant? Or mm-hmm. or, 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 or Cab? Uh, mm. Merlot, right, yeah. I believe. Works <laughs> nicely. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, and, and come on. Look, look, that makes so much sense when you're talking about it because the wines of Bordeaux, I mean, what, you know, some of the wonderful characters they have, bramble fruits, dark fruits, uh, earth in a good way, just things that go so well with the berries. So yeah, that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense that you're talking about there. If, I would encourage people to, to, to experiment with that at home, but if people are buying, when it comes to ABV and also sweetness of this ingredient, what are you looking for as the ideal when you're using it in this cocktail, or roughly?
1: You You really want it to do exactly what it did to Dick, which is you want it to take you to childhood, summer memories Mm -hmm. of that flavor. And you, you should be able to find that in a good creme Mour.
0: Yeah. And so those, I think when I'm tasting and analyzing different drinks, I think it's that idea of this catch-all word that we use, which is like complexity, right? That it, yeah. that it's it's not one-dimensional. That it goes in different areas and just yeah, yeah, it makes you start thinking of different things.
1: I mean, you you really want the fruit to come through. That's the whole point yeah. of this drink.
0: Mm-hmm. And ABV is this like a twenty-ish percent liqueur or maybe a little bit lower? Or how uh, are we looking at there? Yeah, we're twenty twenty-five. Twenty twenty-five. Right. Um any things that you would like to say with regard to the ingredients, lemon juice and simple syrup or a sweetening agent as they pertain to this drink?
1: No, not particularly. I, I yeah. don't think that we need a deep dive. Dick, <laughs> dick specified Spanish lemon, which Spanish I found lemon. interesting. Um, I think that was just the lemons that he had available to him when he was making it. Uh, I doubt he would have turned his nose up at an amalfi lemon or <laughs> yeah. even... I, I'm. Would have been curious to see what he'd do with a Meyer lemon.
0: Yeah, here. Yeah,
1: a particular favorite of mine. Mm. Oh, it was such a gorgeous flavor from Meyer lemons.
0: Wonderful, wonderful ingredient there. But you're right; it probably speaks more to the era and, and the origins of this. That was the what was there for him. Um, you mentioned it briefly, but if we can run through again now the preparation of this drink, if you were going to be making it yourself. In terms of the maybe like the the bar quality version, how are you approaching this? Can you talk us through it step by step with the uh ratios there or the yeah the the quantities of each ingredient so dick
1: structure was fifty mils of gin twenty five mils of lemon, uh two bar spoons of sugar syrup or ten mils uh, and then into a shaker with ice, give it a shake, pour it over a a whiskey glass or old-fashioned glass, double old-fashioned glass filled with crushed ice. Pour that in, then top that crushed ice up a bit more to give it a nice round head, then pour 20 mils of creme de mour over the top of that crushed ice, sticking more to the edges than the center because then you're seeing it through the sides of the glass as it trickles down through the ice and laces it with beautiful stripes of color. And um, though he doesn't include it in any of his recipes, I distinctly remember uh, the first one that he made for me, garnished with two beautiful blackberries on top and then dusted with a little bit of powdered sugar that Mm -hmm. he had in a tea strainer sitting on a plate. So we picked it up and just tapped the tea strainer a couple of times. Perfect dusting of powdered sugar over there. And that is Dick Bradsell's bramble.
0: Wonderful. One final question on that little tea strainer there, Mm -hmm. the the powdered sugar. We're drinking this from a straw. Is that purely uh, aesthetics there, or is that going to dissolve with some of the ice and and, kind of maintain? I don't know.
1: Um, in terms of the flavor of the drink purely aesthetic yep. uh doesn't really affect the flavor of the drink in terms of the flavor of the garnish when you pick up one of the blackberries ah it's now been sweetened
0: very nice bit. because the the blackberry is you know it's a it's a tart <coughs> fruit
1: mm-hmm. yeah you
0: know? there's no there's no or tart berry there's no denying that 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 makes a lot of sense, okay well, that's been wonderful um just wondering any final thoughts you have on this cocktail or the conversation so far before we move into our weekly re- recurring questions to finish the show.
1: I would say that um, this is a drink that really does need the crushed ice um, simply because there you get that effect of the, that lovely trickle of creme de mort. It doesn't work at all if the drink is sitting on the rocks. And as Dick specified in his description of it, it's a drink that needs to be on ice rather than served up.
0: Yeah, 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 I can definitely see that with, with those different components there. Well, that's been wonderful. Jared, let's, let's finish the show here with our, with our weekly questions. How are you feeling about moving into those? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Fabulous. Question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar?
1: Oh, there's no question but what it's gin. Uh, (laughs) There is a lot of gin on the back bar, and we've just come out of this interminable pandemic. And so I was at home, working from home and not going out to bars. So the wife and I would have a single drink daily with our supper and um, almost invariably, it would be a um, Gibson cocktail, and we became very, became very obsessed with the Gibson. Mm-hmm.
0: So, can, can you tell us your your Gibson spec here? And I, I, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you're making your own onions for this, but I might be wrong there. Um,
1: beyond that, we're growing shallots for this, <laughs> of course, and harvesting them a bit on the small side. Yep. And then using a Japanese pickling recipe, uh, not just because it's got one of the coolest names, which is rakyu. Rakyu. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and um, so these rakyu pickled shallots and then slicing the shallot to about uh, six to eight millimeters and putting that on a toothpick so that you've got this perfect cylinder, this mm-hmm. disc of onion garnish and um, when i'm mixing them what i'll do is i'll prep the garnish first fill glasses with ice and water to chill down the cocktail glasses and then i will stick the garnish in with the ice and the water so that the garnish is even though it came out of the fridge Mm -hmm. i'm going to get it that little bit colder yeah, while I'm chilling the glasses, but also gives it a light rinse.
0: Yeah, yeah, it takes away some of that pungency because it, it, it's 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 strong. Yep, yeah, you want it to slip into the drink, not
1: for it to take over the drink. Yeah, and then um, either stirring or throwing a um, usually about a three to one or four to one um, with the London dry gin, dry vermouth, mm-hmm. and uh, then. Spill out the glasses of the ice and water, put the garnishes back in, and fill them up.
0: Phenomenal. Wonderful cocktail. One we have covered here, of course, as well. If you, want to, if you haven't listened to that episode, of the Gibson, Megan Dorman, check that out on our feed. Uh, great drink. Question number two here for you. Which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal?
1: Oh, I'll give you both. And the least valued ingredient... Still to this day, vermouth seems to get so little respect, and there are some great multinational vermouths out there that um, sell for you know, essentially what you've got there is a $20 bottle of wine selling for 10 you know, it's sort of the the opposite of going out and buying a Chateau Margaux at the moment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> where you know, great wine, but you're paying a heck of a premium yeah. to keep somebody in Beijing from buying that bottle.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a there's a st- stiff competition these days for those wines.
1: Yep, truly, and so yeah, vermouth. Mm-hmm. I, I dearly love it. I use a lot of it at home. Um, undervalued, mm-hmm. um, underrated, undervalued for tools is um, the stirring end of a bar spoon. For some reason, uh, this generation of bartenders decide they need to stir with the measuring end, and they practice and practice and practice. Some of them are phenomenal at it. It's beautiful to watch, but it's really like handing somebody a Porsche Turbo Carrera And they take it out on the motorway in reverse. (laughs) Why? Because I can. (laughs) Baby, you watch this. I am so good at driving this thing backwards. (laughs) Oh, you know what? Turn that spoon over and use the damn stirring end.
0: (laughs) So much easier for everyone involved. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love those recommendations right there. Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry?
1: Oh, wow. Most important piece of advice. Uh, trying to narrow it down because I've received so many great bits of advice. Um, one that didn't come to me as a bit of advice uh, was Sasha Petrosky saying to his bartenders, um, I encourage you to have a drink. While you're working, if I ever find you drunk, I will fire you on the spot. <laughs> and it was this message of moderate consumption. Yeah. And um, I take that with me daily and I keep it in mind that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a gin distiller. I'm a drinks writer. I'm, I'm allowed to have a drink, not allowed to be drunk. And so I've always kept that one in mind. Another one, when I had my first bartending job, uh, somewhere in the East 90s here, in Manhattan, and old sales guy would come in every afternoon, sit at the bar for as long as I would make him drinks, he would uh, just keep teaching me. And I don't know who thought was, was getting the better part of that deal, but mm-hmm. uh, I'll never forget him saying to me, good spirits warm, bad spirits burn.
0: You know, this is one of the things that I particularly enjoy about, you know, US drinks culture bars here versus the UK. I'm not saying that the bar seating doesn't exist in England, but very often, and I think probably grown out of pubs and having that area standing and, you know, when it's busy, you get your drink, you order it, you pick it up and you leave. I do love that about the States, you know, when you move here and and you can, you don't need to know anyone. You sit up at a bar, start a conversation, maybe with the person next to you or maybe the bartender, and just you're very soon you're not alone, even if you did walk in there alone. And I think that's one of the things that I do love about here. I, I should say it does exist in, in England and whatnot, but not to the same extent, right? Truly. Yep. It's, it's, it's a wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful that. You know,
1: another bit of advice that I was given long ago is um, never forget... That um, we're having fun and never forget that uh, we're, we're in the drinks industry. This is yep. a, an industry of good times. Mm-hmm. And uh, be careful of taking things too seriously. Mm-hmm.
0: I think both your piece of advice there, you know, the, the first and the second there, it's like find that middle ground, right? Mm-hmm. Moderation, enjoy it, mindful. That's it. Be in the moment when you're drinking these things, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. Three for one there. (laughs) Penultimate question. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, can be past or present, occasionally fictional, which one would it be?
1: Oh, it would be a Friday afternoon at the bar in the Sipsmith Distillery. Absolutely. When all of the young members of the team have come out of the office Everyone's jumped behind the bar. They've got new ideas, new drinks. They've just been thinking about all week and start experimenting and comparing and sharing around the bar. Somebody else pulls out their phone, hits their playlist, the music's on. And uh, I have the great fortune to work with some really wonderful people, some, some very happy people Mm -hmm. and uh, they're just a joy to be around any any time that I get to spend with them I feel like it's such a privilege and right then most of all so I would say that little bar in the Sipsmith distillery
0: that sounds like a wonderful Friday afternoon right there yeah gearing up for the weekend Mm -hmm. the transition from the week to the weekend right there
1: and occasionally well I'll have to reach behind the shelf, and back on that back bar just behind it, uh, there is a champagne sword there, and I would say every single person in the office has sabred at least a few bottles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good when, skill to have. Absolutely, when
0: it's time for French 75s. <laughs> savoring. Yep. Final question for you here today, Jared. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Oh, a double. A double. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Definitely. Uh, it would probably be a twist on the martini. And um, I came up with a drink a while back, uh, one of those strange afternoons where the owner of the Royal Tokai Essentia walks into the distillery. Hugh Johnson? Um, no. I don't recall. Uh, but he, he walked in with this bottle in a beautiful box, opened it up. The bottle is there uh, next to a crystal spoon, which was used to give a pope on their deathbed this transition between earth and heaven, this wine that takes years to ferment to 4%. And it is honeyed and nectarine and beautiful flavor. And he opened it up and he gave me a taste and he said, do you think you could make a cocktail with this? How, how is this happening to me? What is going <laughs> on here? This is, this is phenomenal. This is like 500 a half yeah. bottle. And he wants me to mix with it. And uh, yes. And I took this uh, 1700s wine glass small wine glass, and I dropped two cubes from the Hoshizaki machine into this glass. I poured in um, one part of the Royal Takai Essentia to uh, two parts of our VJOP, the very juniper overproof gin, and then I squeezed an orange twist about 18 inches above that and discarded it, and I named that drink... The last wish. So
0: perfect for this question. <laughs> and what an incredible drink it sounds like too. I have had the fortune also once to taste the Royal Tokai Essentia at their, at their property there. And it's magical. I mean, it really is. It's, it's mm-hmm. a magical ingredient. And I love the openness of them there, though. Speaks to your advice. Don't take things too seriously. Like, can you use this in a cocktail? Incredible. That's what I like to see in here and hopefully taste.
1: (laughs) Oh, and the the reason that I put two ice cubes in the glass and built this in the glass is because I could not imagine leaving a single drop of the the Tokai in a mixing glass or in a tin. No, I wanted every drop in the glass. Mm -hmm.
0: And I imagine that was just a wonderful marriage there of those two ingredients. Oh, it was. We
1: actually put it on a cocktail list. Um, we were doing a 100-martini pop-up menu. Um, I originally wasn't going to do this. Business partner Sam had come up with this idea. And he said, what would you think of that? And I felt like it had really been killed, buried in the late 90s, early 2000s, when anything in a V glass was a martini. Yeah. And um, he asked me again, and so I gave it some thought. And I said, well, I tell you what, um, I'll write the menu, but 90 of those drinks will be pre-Second World War. And then 10 that are a bit more modern, like mm-hmm. Julia Child's reverse martini, yeah. The Last Wish. And there was some very special ones, but that went on for, I think that drink was about 100 bucks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <I was gonna laughs> and say. we
1: sold a bunch of them.
0: Amazing, that's that's my kind of menu. By the way, hundred martinis, absolutely. That was fun, <laughs> Jared. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful having you in the studio and discussing the bramble, the brad cell, all things gin, and just some weird historical tangents there. Thank you for your time today.
1: Oh, well, it was such a pleasure to be here with you, and uh, thanks so much.
0: Cheers. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of Vine Pairs Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits cocktail college is recorded and produced in new york city by myself and keith beavers vinepair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru of course i want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the vinepair team too many awesome people to mention they know who they are but i want to give some credit here to Danielle grinberg art director at vinepair for designing the awesome show logo and listen to that music that's a darby seaside original